The Land Back movement gains national attention, but what does Land Back look like? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, July 20th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the Christian Science Monitor recently released a series of reports on reparations. They asked questions about mending the past, crafting a lifestyle of repair, and what justice looks like when it goes beyond apology. We'll talk with journalist Henry Gass about why a financial settlement didn't end the conversation over whether the Black Hills can be owned. Then we dive deeper into the land back philosophy with members of Indian Collective in Rapid City. Plus, the power of a byline. Kevin Wooster offers his later in the hour. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. In 1886, Margaret King was buried on a grassy hilltop. Her grave overlooked her family's Hutchinson County homestead and the James River. She was 44 when her family laid her to rest. More than 130 years later, three friends uncovered her ornate white marble headstone. With some help from social media, they connected Margaret King with some of her descendants. Laura Rohde with SDPB brings us this story from a hilltop pasture in Hutchinson County. We had a pretty good general idea when, when we started, you know, stumbling around up here, but I was way up on top of this knoll up here looking for it, and my son and I were actually on our way back, heading that way back to where the pickup was when I came across that footstone. So, I mean, it, again, had I been three feet over that way or two feet over that way, we wouldn't be standing here today. Rob Munson has just trekked about a mile on foot through a cattle pasture and has come to rest on a hilltop covered in waist-high grass. Beside him stand his friends, Tom Heisinger and Dwayne Winter. The three men are looking at an ornate, white marble headstone. Tom Heisinger reads the inscription. Margaret, wife of Henry King, died May 16, 1886, aged 44 years, 4 months, and 9 days. days. Yep. Yep. Today, Margaret King's headstone stands upright atop a concrete base, and it's surrounded by a protective fence. For decades, maybe longer, the headstone was buried several inches under topsoil and native grasses. Tom Heisinger, Rob Munson, and Dwayne Winter are responsible for its discovery and restoration. The men grew up in Parkston, and even though they were a few grades apart in school, they are all veterans— and over the years, they have bonded over this shared experience. Rob Munson explained how the headstone hunt began in 2008 with a different type of hunt. I was talking with Dwayne uh, uh, where he works. I was talking about turkey hunting out here. And he said, hey, if you're ever walking around out there, there's a grave up on top of that hill. And then now we got to go back to him so he can explain. Well, I just live a mile and a half south of here. I suppose he was showing us this. I don't know. Now, yeah, in the 70s, my dad showed me that, but it was... Well, it kind of got forgotten about. We were up here just kind of looking around on top of this hill, kind of where Duane said this thing might be. And it was a little bit earlier in the spring, so the grass wasn't quite as high. And I happened to be walking along up here, and I'll be darned if I didn't find a perfectly square stone. And as I picked it up, sure enough, the corner was broke off, just like Duane had described it. And I said, oh my gosh, I found the grave. And then the plan was after that was always, I told Tom about it. We worked together at the school uh, in Parkston. 
And I told Tom that I'd found this grave, and he said, well, we got to go back out there sometime and check this out. So years go by, years go by, and then we finally decided to come out, and it was right before COVID hit, really. When Munson and Heisinger returned to the pasture hilltop in 2020 to relocate the stone Munson and his son found during the turkey hunt, Heisinger uncovered Margaret's headstone, Tom Heisinger. Yeah, I had the that chunk of concrete that Dwayne had described to Rob, and he had found the first time in... What, 2009, you figured? 2008, there? yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I had this in my hand. I was just ready to set it back in the hole, the same hole it came out of. And this chunk of dirt, about inch in diameter, maybe an inch thick, was sticking on the bottom of that. And I looked down in that hole, and here is this nice, well, you can see the color of the headstone here. The head, yes, the it footstone. Was... It's called the footstone that's underneath the headstone, but actually the, the footstone was laying on top of the headstone. When the men returned to the hilltop to reset the headstone, they came with tools, quickcrete, and questions. Who was Margaret King? When they researched 1886 plat maps, the farmland was owned by Heinrich Koenig, not Henry King. To find answers, Munson posted the photo of the headstone to a historical Facebook page. And this is how the men connected with area historian Daniel Flieger. Turns out, Margaret King is Flieger's wife's great-aunt, making Henry King his wife's great-uncle. And because of the family connection, Flieger was able to solve the mystery of why Heinrich Koenig's name is on the plat map, not Henry King. What surprised the socks off of me was when they discovered this tombstone, um, the name on the tombstone doesn't read Koenig, it reads King. Now, Koenig in German is, is the German word for king, but that tells me that somebody came along and put that stone there sometime after World War One, because the family... Uh, changed their name from Koenig to King. To avoid being seen as German sympathizers, Flieger explained that during World War I, most members of the family changed their name from Koenig to King. Today, the men not only know who Margaret King was, but they have met some of her ancestors. And they say it feels good knowing their efforts have reconnected her to family. Again, Tom Heisinger. No man left behind. I think once you served in the military, as we all have, I think that's somewhat instilled in you. It's like she was left behind, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, need to be taken care of, I guess. Through the process of restoring Margaret King's headstone, Heisinger, Winter, and Munson learned that no one knows where her husband Henry's grave is located. They plan to hunt for it next. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde. You can find and share this story online, sdpb.org slash news. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What does it mean for a society to atone for systemic and enduring harms? That is the question editors and reporters pondered to unpack the reparations debate in the pages of the Christian Science Monitor. Journalist Henry Gass wrote about the value of land in the reparations debate. He interviewed some people you might recognize, Madonna Thunderhawk, Steve Allender, Barry Dunn, Frank Pomersheim. 
You can find the full reporting online at csmonitor.com slash reparations. I spoke on the phone with Henry Gass earlier this week. This uh, reporting came out of a, a broader series we did at the Monitor about reparations. For me, I've, I've covered you know Native issues for for several years now, and, and so that's sort of what my mind turned to early on, the actual the South Dakota story that I ended up doing after I sort of made a few calls and, and talked with some people about sort of the idea of reparations for Native people in North America. Um, just what I kept hearing was was land and the, the desire for land return or, or sort of more the control or, or influence and say over land for, for tribes. Um, and so I ended up going back to my editors and saying, you know, I really think we need to, to do a story about land and, and, and land back this, this movement. Uh, it was obviously sort of has picked up some, uh, some interest and in, in steam in recent years. And so uh, we ended up uh, focusing a story on that in the Black Hills. So this is a, a series that is all about, you know, what does justice look like in this situation? What does atonement look like? And you talk in the piece, and I think most of our listeners here in South Dakota Public Radio are at least basically familiar with the vast difference in worldviews of the indigenous people regarding land and what came during colonization with this idea of land ownership. Help uh, people who are maybe new to this conversation understand the impact of those worldviews being so different, particularly when we look at the treaties, uh, Fort Laramie in 1868 and the gold rush in 1877. It's really at the at the heart of, of all of this, really. You know, you talk about worldviews, and they are really diametrically opposed when it comes to, to how Native people view view the land and how how colonizers, settlers viewed it. Tribes really don't see land as as property or you know something to to be bought and sold. It's more like a neighbor or or a cousin, something there that's part of them and and they're part of. It's like a, a relative, um, something that they have to take care of and something that that takes care of them. Um, and so that meant that you know when settlers did move west, moved west with the mentality of occupying land and and accessing its resources and, and using that to, to secure their, their own livelihoods, then that really left Native people at a bit, bit of a disadvantage. You know, with treaties, there was, you know, which which arrived in the context of, you know, military campaigns from the U.S. government against against tribes and other pressures around, um, you know, disease and, and, and starvation and, 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 you know, what happened with the, the buffalo and, and so on. And so... Trees were signed under, you know, not optimal conditions for if you were a, a, a tribe. But the treaties essentially forced them into the worldview of land as being property. That worldview ultimately won out with the treaties. And then, of course, you know, you mentioned the Treaty of Fort Laramie lasted about seven or eight years before the, the government in the midst of, of the gold rush in western South Dakota um, reneged on the treaty and uh, and settled that land anyway, which they they promised to the Sioux in that treaty. And this all intersects with the boarding school program for the federal government of the United States because, as you said, when you look at the mentality of occupying land, um, the U.S. government said, we need to remove people, and you remove the children, 
and everything goes from there. What? Why is the United States so late to the game in figuring out an apology, figuring out what justice looks like, figuring out where bodies are buried? What did you learn about that delay, essentially? It's, it's interesting. So, uh, like, one other story I did for the series was, was about apologies and, and sort of focused on, and I'm not sure if you know this, but um, the, the U.S. government did officially apologize to, to Native tribes. It was put into a sort of an, a defense budget bill in 2010, this, this official apology, but it's never actually been sort of read out loud, really, by, by the Obama administration then President Obama or, or, or any sort of high-level um, government officials since then. Um, so it's strange in that technically an apology has been issued to Native people, um, but it hasn't actually been read. And like you said, sort of other countries are, have done more. I mean, just in terms of Native people, um, the Canadian government has officially apologized to, to the First Nations in Canada. Um, the same has happened in, in Australia and New Zealand, I believe, and then sort of elsewhere around the world. Other countries are, are, you know, like sort of like you said, further along in the the truth and reconciliation process, sort of wrestling with these these historic, historic wrongs and 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 wrongdoings. Why why is the U.S. further behind? I'm not sure I can really answer that. Um, I, I think what you know what we we were interested in looking at with our series was looking at not why it hasn't happened yet, but you know what can happen now and and what perhaps should happen now. Of course, an apology is part of that, but also, you know, what I was really interested in looking into with the, the story about land back in the Black Hills is uh, sort of other things that, that the government can do to not pay tribes back for the land that was taken, but to to repair the relationship that the land seizures caused, as, as people told me, to build a new relationship and move forward in a new and better way than than we've been able to do up to now. Yeah, let's talk more about that because rather famously the U.S. Supreme Court upheld in 1980 uh, the tribe's argument uh, about the way the Black Hills were taken. It's a more ripe and rank case of dishonorable dealings will never in all probability be found in our history. And the tribes don't, don't want the money because taking the money would be as uh, Madonna Thunderhawk, who's been a guest on our show, is also in your piece. It's selling out. But let's talk about what potentially comes next. We did an interview not too long ago with some folks from the Land Back Movement in Rapid City, and they said it looks a lot like estate planning. And as I'm reading in your um, piece, it looks a lot like co-management and uh, relationship building. What did you find that gave you hope about going forward with this topic? You know, I'd like to start with with co-management because I think that's a sort of a very sort of vivid and, and vivid example of, of sort of what we could see and and are seeing really. That's um, sort of what what gives me some hope is that the National Park Service is sort of making this a something of a priority to in in different certain parks co-manage them with uh, with the local tribes for for whom that land is is, is very significant. That you know, you know, that's that's being done with the, the Badlands National Park in South Dakota and has been for for a few decades now. That's you know, very you know, very clear and obvious example, I suppose, of how how tribes can be brought into the fold and given more agency and and, and authority to to care for lands that that are important to them and have been 
you know, sacred to them for, for generations. That, I think, is, is something that, that can, can be done more um, in more places and, and would be a really um, helpful and healthy and, and beneficial, mutually beneficial partnership and relationship to, to build on. Another thing that I'd like to mention that sort of gave me hope is a, an interview I did with the, I suppose, outgoing mayor now of, of Rapid City who talked about sort of the efforts that, that he went through to try and ultimately they weren't that successful, but to, to try and convert some some public land there that used to be the Rapid City Indian Boarding School um, and sort yeah. of return it to to Native people in the form of building a sort of a Native economic development uh, organization and uh, a Native community center. Ultimately, I think the only thing that Right now, at least, his act is actually in the works is a permanent memorial to the victims of the, the boarding school. But he talked about the benefits in terms of teaching people more about what the history is and, and what happened with, with Native people in South Dakota, but also maybe more importantly, the fact that he said, you know, on any given day, a quarter of Rapid City's population is Native. They're a huge part of the community in that city and they don't have the maybe the, the, the same benefits and resources and um, voice in that community as, as they maybe should. And so for him, a big part of, of that, that effort was to give the Native community in Rapid City uh, more agency and more of a voice, making people more aware of the history, but in doing so, meaning people are, are more open to and, and interested in and, and willing to work with Native people who, you know, are with us today and, and, and living and, and, and working alongside us today and, and building that relationship for the future. You also talked with President Barry Dunn of South Dakota State University, our land-grant university, and his work with the Wokini Initiative, the acknowledgement, again, that we're a land-grant university at SDSU, and therefore there is not only an opportunity but an obligation to do this kind of a grant making and inviting students into our uh, classrooms, helping with graduation rates. What did you learn about that program with Barry Dunn? No, that's another interesting initiative that's going on. They, they've launched this this initiative essentially that takes money from, you know, from their land grant status, you know, funds that they generate from, from the land that the university owns, um, and they're putting it, you know, directly back towards their uh, native student population um, and their you know, increasing their recruitment and, and scholarships for um, for native students to be able to, to, to attend SDSU. Another part is, you know, I, I also spoke with uh, a woman on the, the Cheyenne River Reservation who who did a master's at SDSU and ended up getting funding through them to plant more native native trees on her reservation. Yeah. Um, one more thought, because you are um, a Supreme Court reporter as well. You've covered the court for some time. Clearly, the ICWA decision, McGirt v. Oklahoma, the presence of Justice Neil Gorsuch, and his writings have been very meaningful for the Native community as they look at his language and the potential direction of the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you personally see... Any cases or any um, openings for an intersection between the U.S. Supreme Court and the Land Back Initiative now? Do they come together at, at some point? Is now the time 
I, I'm not aware of any any cases sort of in the pipeline right now that that would would do that. Um, obviously, you know, with Justice Gorsuch, you have a very powerful voice for for tribes on the court. Um, you know, he's 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 very very knowledgeable about about Indian law and maybe the most knowledgeable in the history of the court about Indian law. Um, that said, I, I'm not sure if there would be five votes out of nine for for something that would uh, be in the interest of tribes in the context of, of land back. Um, I'm not sure like what that, that case would look like, but for sure with, with Justice Gorsuch there, that, that tribes have a very strong advocate on the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll see if, if something happens, but I would think it would take a few years at least for it to for a case to, to work its way up to the court. You can find the work of Henry Gass and others as the Christian Science Monitor explores the reparations debate. Go online at csmonitor.com slash reparations. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Let's hear more now about the Land Back Movement. The movement came into sharper relief in 2020, but the politics, the protests, and the stories have been around much longer. In June, Lee Strubinger and I visited the recording studios of Indian Collective in Rapid City. We wanted to learn more about forest management in the context of land back. In other words, what does land back actually mean? What would it look like? So we sat down with Taylor Gunhammer, local organizer at NDN Collective, and Anpo Jensen, NDN action organizer and an environmental engineer. We talked about history, climate change, and the future. Take a listen. Do you have memories of story, oral history, narrative from childhood, and memories of when you realized there was a disconnect between what you knew to be true and what you were learning in a classroom, for example? Yeah, I mean, our entire lives were, were fed a story that isn't true. Um, and it comes back to, you know, our parents, our grandparents, our communities. And we, we know the truth and we know our oral history, our stories from like the beginning of time. And so that is our liberation. That's where our sovereignty is. And we have memory of that. And because we have memory of that, you know, we're not going to forget it and we're not going to let anyone else forget it. So that's, um, it's just who we are. That's that's who we are, and um, we're all raised that way, whether, you know, no matter where we grow up, we, we know that history. The simple truth when it comes to climate change is that Earth will not survive without indigenous stewardship and traditional ecological knowledge, which the International Panel on Climate Change actually agrees with wholeheartedly. And so when we go back even to the story of this, the colonization and settlement of America, uh, those resources and the extraction of them have always been at the heart of that, that push. And even now, as indigenous peoples, we make up 5% of the global population and we occupy 15% of the land on Earth and we protect 80% of the remaining biodiversity on Earth. We are the people who do this and we always have been. And in fact, many of the disastrous environmental situations we find ourselves in now started out as a rejection of traditional indigenous knowledge. 
And that is, in fact, the exact reason why anti-Indigenous policy is so deeply baked into American governmental policy and always has been. The settlement of the Black Hills is the exact same thing. Is it a rejection of the Indigenous body as well as Indigenous knowledge? What does that bring up for you when I say that? Well, it reminds me of, I mean, just right offhand, uh, the Yurok tribe in California, for example. They have practiced controlled burns in the Yosemite Valley for thousands of years that made it the Yosemite we think of. And it's only now that wildfires are ravaging the landscape and filling the air with smoke. It's only now that the agencies responsible for managing those things are starting to realize, whoa, these indigenous people who lived here for thousands of years may have actually learned something about the land and how to take care of it. And I mean, it goes all the way back in New England. There are accounts of settlers who walk into a forest and they say, oh, it's like an orchard. There's just food everywhere. It's so perfectly managed. There's not a huge fire risk. And where they veer off the rails is when they say, isn't it crazy that God created and made all of this and these indigenous people who live here had nothing to do with it? Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's quite weird. <laughs> so Anpo, when you look at the history, um, jumping off of what Taylor said, uh, this idea that people would come to a space, would stand there and say, it's, it's empty, it's new, we're the first to be here, and now, hundreds of years later, we have forest management. When I say forest management today, there are some similarities and some vast differences to the forest management that the indigenous people saw. What are some of those commonalities and what are some of those differences? Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of... Um I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Smokey the Bear is actually, you know, kind of the symbol of anti-Indigenous wildfire management. It's about um, suppressing wildfires. And a lot of people don't recognize that when they created reservations, they essentially severed our relationship with um, stewarding the Black Hills, with having access to wood and all of that. And so we that, that relationship was severed. And... And, it, and a lot of the reservations uprooted indigenous peoples, like natural livelihoods, um, which I think goes unrecognized. And because of that, um, that anti-indigenous policy, as Taylor was say, talking about, is the reason why um, we're here in like, the state that we are with wildfires. And so I go all, all the way to college and... You know, they have, like, new vocabulary language to this, like, innovative approach to wildfire management. And something as fancy as saying mechanical removal um, is the same as saying my uncles that go up to the Bighorn Mountains to get ponderosa pine for our teepees, for our ceremonies. Um, we do that for free, and that's because we want to live and we want to survive, our culture to thrive. Um in California, they're paying hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars for people to do that. Imagine just returning the land back to us and, have, and, and allocating those resources to us, you know, to better our people, to better our environment. Um, it's just, it's a natural fit. And um, there, are, there are differences, um, and I don't know if you want me to go into them, like differences between controlled and, you know, the wildfires that exist today. But um, essentially, it, it's, it, it, 
it's kind of the same in a way. I do want to get into some of the differences, but first, what does land back mean? Land back manifesto. When you when you fly the flag, would you drop a banner? Some how do you want people to read that message? What is land back, Taylor? Well, okay, so there's a thing that happens when the the U.S. government sort of uh, when they realize that on our lands there are resources that they want. Uh, first of all, they, as we all, the part we know is that they start making moves to extract all of that stuff. But there's sort of a, a ripple effect that reverberates out from that where our lands and our bodies and our well-being are often the fallback for government and dirty industries when they don't want to change their mode of operation to create a more sustainable planet when they don't want to interrupt their easy, convenient profit stream that they've established forever. That anti-indigenous sentiment that's baked into American policy is always the fallback. Like if we look at the Willow Project, it completely, absolutely flies in the face of every commitment to combat climate change <laughs> that has been made by Joe Biden. And they're doing it anyway. And the way they're getting away with it is to put it on indigenous lands where automatically it's taken less seriously or even seen as a good thing, as a good thing for America. Because honestly, uh, from the very first moment of for-profit resource extraction from our lands, uh, it has been sort of implicitly set up that being anti-Indian is being pro-America. But we have now come to a point with climate change and environmental disasters in general where the government has demonstrated that they don't care about you. They're not going to look out for you. Industry doesn't care about you. They're not going to look out for you. Us, we love this land so much. We are this land. And we do care and we will always care. And there's no amount of money that can buy that. I read in your magazine, Decolonization or Extinction. So I have two questions. One is, if uh, all your work is for naught and nothing changes, which direction are we going? And then the second question is, if your work is successful and you convince people, um, whether through massive social protest or through political policy, to change things, what changes and then, and then what? So the first question is, um, if... Nobody listens to a word that you say and nothing changes and we continue on the path that we're on. What happens? It's a pretty, pretty simple answer to that. We won't make it. Life will not be uh, able to exist and habitate and propagate on this planet. Like when, when you're heading toward a cliff, what happens when you get off the edge of the cliff? That's what we're looking at. And indigenous peoples right now, uh, whether people care to admit it or not, and largely they don't, uh, we are your only shot at surviving this rejection of our traditional ecological knowledge that has put us in the spot we're in. You have to come back to us. We're your only shot. So what do you want? Land and, back. And what if you get it? What do you want? Say more about that. What is that? That mean it fits on a flag, it fits on a bumper sticker, but land back means what in reality? 
It means stewardship. I mean, we want to preserve that biodiversity that we are already responsible for maintaining. And I mean, you look at all these other places where that biodiversity has decreased by 80%. It's pretty clear that we're right. We're the people who should maintain these things, which are absolutely essential to our future. If you don't think biodiversity matters, don't eat food. So the president of the United States, who's in charge of federal policy, says, come to the White House. I'm going to turn some of this policy over to you as an advisor. There's going to be resources to implement policy. What do you say to him in his office, Anpo? I would say I want all the, the treaty territory land back. Um, from the 1851 and 1868 Fort Laramie treaties that was established, which also protects the Oglala Aquifer and the watersheds. And our ancestors knew that encompassed all of those waterways. And so that's a, people don't realize that we have solutions. People, so today, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Today, we everyone's looking for solutions in a way. Um, people want answers and people do care. And I think that's what's inspiring too. But people also don't really know what a solution even looks like. And as an environmental engineer and as a Lakota woman, you know, I see it as clear as day that those solutions in that future exist. Um, and people don't realize that our treaties are actually the first climate change prevention plans that ever existed. And that's 200 years ago that they created that our ancestors who fought and won the Battle of Little Bighorn who fought numerous battles and won, had this vision for this future for, for their children, their generations to come. And those treaties are the first blueprint, you know. If, if you want a real solution, a real policy, understand those treaties and honor them because that is, that's a tangible thing that can be done uh, and outlined. Um, and, you know, the it, it all returns to our, our people, we, we embody these solutions. So what I always, what I heard um, before was, do not accept responsibility if you do not have, um, if you do not have uh, power. And for us, land back, having our land back is having that decision-making ability to make those um, solutions come to reality uh, and implement those solutions that that our ancestors went underground to keep, to provide for us today. Um, and that was a thing is when our cultures and our traditions were made illegal in the 70s, um, 60s, our, basically most of our existence they were made illegal. Our grandfathers, especially in Oglala uh, territory, we went underground, right? We, we went underground and we ignored those Western constructs of suppressing our culture and our language. And they're the reason why we have solutions. And so we go back to anti-Indigenous policy and the impact of that um, is it, it's real. And uh, I, I think about the future is like, we're gonna, we're gonna survive because we're Oglala, because we're Ocheti Shakoni, because we're Indigenous peoples. But we want everyone else to survive too, right? We, we care about everyone and that's kind of how we are as a people. And that was a narrative that was stolen from us from the beginning, right? How much we actually care for all of life, not just our own. Um, so that's that's what I think about, and that's what I think about when we talk, when we you know emphasize land back. 
That's Taylor Gunhammer and Anpo Jensen with Indian Collective. We recorded that conversation in their recording studio. You'll hear more about mining, timber, watershed protection, fire, and flora this fall as SDPB continues to explore the Black Hills National Forest. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. If you're a journalist, there is nothing that quite compares to your first byline. The first time our next guest saw the words by Kevin Wooster in print, he found a sense of purpose and confidence that still resonates today. You can find his column on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. I caught up with Kevin yesterday. Well, let me think. It was just a few years ago. Okay, okay, not a few, 50, uh, 50 years ago, half a century ago. Uh, that seems like a long time, maybe to some people. Uh, it's uh, funny how fast the time passes. Yeah. As I, you know, as I say in the blog, when you're having fun, and it was mostly fun. But yeah, 50 years ago this summer, my first byline in a weekly newspaper, the Chamberlain Register, and that was where this all started. And away we went. What was the story? It was kind of a silly story, although as I look back on it, uh, you know, I've certainly written a lot more important stories maybe and more complicated stories. But there was a story about a guy that showed up on the main street of Chamberlain in the summer of 73. And I was a couple of semesters into my journalism uh, major at SDSU. Uh, still hadn't done any real reporting or anything. And uh, he was wearing buckskin's outfit, a buckskin outfit, and had a, a gun on his hip, as I recall. A, I'm pretty sure it was a 45 caliber. And uh, he was wearing it. It was some kind of a fur cap. Over the years, it's either been, a, in my mind, it's been a, like a mink or type of a hat or sure. a coonskin cap or a, or a skunk that because later on he w- he was well known for wearing a skunk hat uh furs of a skunk so uh and he i just talked to him about what he was doing and he was kind of a self-styled mountain man from out around du bois wyoming and that was the story that ran and gosh i got a lot of positive feedback and i did like that a lot yeah so the first time you saw it that was a really positive feeling for you. Like getting your name there attached to your work. I mean, I was uncomfortable the first time I saw my name attached to a story. Like I really sort of wanted it to be anonymous. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, cause I didn't want the criticism, you know, but to be yeah, honest, I was yeah. afraid like everybody's going to know I wrote that. And if I fail, it is a very sure. public failure, but there was also a sense of validation. And I think my first byline, uh, was well was probably for the augustana mirror the newspaper in college but then the first magazine piece i ever sold because that's what i originally wanted to do was for a women's surfing magazine and Ah. i wrote a personal essay about an accident a sailing accident see i've been hit in the head kevin (laughs) that explains a lot and i uh and i wrote about that for this magazine. And I remember seeing my name and thinking, oh, dear God, now everybody knows who I am. 
And you thought, yes, well, now everybody knows who I am. Yeah. <laughs> because as, as, as my older siblings always point out, the youngest of the, you know, the baby of the family always wants the attention, is accustomed to the attention, and maybe that's it. Yeah. And there was an element of cluelessness there to me because I was kind of known around town for being the junior high dropout and the kid with all the emotional problems and the, you know, who, what's ever going to happen to the youngest one. The other four were also successful and popular and everything. What's going to happen to this one? And I, I guess I was clueless about that because I just thought, hey, by Kevin Wooster. And uh, this yeah. photo was one oh even. Everything worked perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, of course, you know. And so I, there I, I was I was so excited by that byline. And it was a little bit of a, you know, unrealistic uh, a sign of what was to come because it was just a fun feature story about a guy and everybody loved it and that's what they told me. So yeah. there are other reactions to my life. Yes, but that feedback um, helped forge your identity. And I think that's a lot of what this column is about is what yeah. does a byline mean besides that first time and what does it mean when it goes away? What does it mean um, throughout a lifetime? There's a lot in here yeah. about that. I just really find that really rewarding as a reader to read, but also compelling to read as your friend. Well, yeah. And if you've, if you've struggled, in my case, especially going to SDSU, that was a big deal for me of just getting a general, you know, educational equivalency and, and getting the GD and, and all of that. And then when I was managed to start writing for the school paper and for the working register and, you know, eventually for the Argus and Rapid City Journal and back and forth between those two a couple of times. And and I got to feel like I was, you know, pretty good. I like to say that I had a slightly above average journalism career in South Dakota. And and uh, and I, I, I believe it was above average. I hope I'm not overselling myself. But beyond that, it was a lot more than people expected of me given my start. And every time I wrote a story and had that byline or column logo on it, it said, yeah, he's the kid who dropped out of school. Sure, we're all who we were, but he's also a lot more than that. And yeah. here's proof of it. <laughs> and that was affirm affirmation in ways that I can't calculate in terms of its value to my life. Yeah. You're being humble here as far as how the rest of the state sees you and your role and your influence as a journalist. So yeah, it's a slightly above average. <laughs> but you talk about the spyline being like, you know, I'm still here. I still matter. I still know who I am. I still have work to do. Now you acknowledge you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you've got a wonderful wife, you know, you're Catholic, so you have a deep faith. You like to be yeah. in nature. God, all those things matter too. But there is something about finding purpose and meaning in work to say, oh, I'm not done with having something to say or something to offer. I like that. It gives you a focus. And as I point out in the blog, sometimes that's essential. When I was going through the divorce, you know, one of the most difficult times of anybody's life, it, it, uh, it gave me a focus, when, especially when my kids weren't with me and we were going through that, because they were obviously the focus when they were. But when I was alone and on the verge of despair, a lot of times driving myself. I was in the Capitol then covering the legislature when there was a full-time, several full-time Capitol bureaus there. 
and uh, uh, big news, important news, interesting news, and uh, deadlines that drew, uh, drove me. And that that byline and the work that it represented uh, focused me and calmed me and and helped me see a way forward uh, in ways that again, I don't know how you put a price on that. I think this is so important too because there is uh, a lot of information out there about, you know, working too much or being too tied to the identity of work. And there's books that Mm -hmm. come out all the time thinking about how we've become enmeshed with our work and how to be a person outside the office. But what I love about this column is that it acknowledges all that, but it also says, you know, when you're feeling, and I feel this too, if I'm feeling at wit's end, if I do a certain kind of work that has meaning that I think can be of service to other people, then that is far different being from being addicted to some kind of uh, daily news adrenaline rush or whatever. But at my worst, when I'm feeling the most burned out, I will make sure that I find a story or an interview or a conversation to do that says, I, I do think this had service. This was of service to people. This maybe helped someone else today. And then you can sleep at night. Yeah. A a good friend and journalist of mine, John Austin, who who has passed away about 20 years ago, said once in jest, he had a sharp sense of humor when he was, when he and I were taking a break from news for a couple of years to work for South Dakota tourism. He said, Woos, the thing I miss most is the illusion of doing something that mattered. And, (laughs) and he was, he was, he was making fun of him and us, but he and I both believed that what we did did matter when we were covering the news and it still does matter. And I'm still able to do it, not on a full-time basis, but part-time. Thank goodness. And thank you, you to you and to the, to the broadcasting network, public broadcasting that I'm, that I have that opportunity. That we're still going. I remember seeing when I was working for the Argus as a freelancer, like doing a big Sunday, you know, back when they had the Sunday Life section and there was a front page feature and I was the front page of Sunday and that's where I always wanted to be because that was the kind of work I was doing. I walked into the South Dakota Festival of Books and all the newspapers were like stacked up in the recycling bin. <laughs> and I was like, and somebody was taking, I think, if I remember correctly, like they were taking one home to like line the cage of their bird, you know, like their bird habitat for lining, because that's what you did with a newspaper. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was just such a moment of humility. And, but in radio, one of the nice things, and same thing in newspaper, is like, you get to do it again tomorrow, you know? Okay, yeah. you can you yeah. can hit delete on this little audio feature. Yep. You know, you can wrap fish in the newspaper, <laughs> but I get to do it again tomorrow. There'll be another, yeah, yeah there'll be another moment. Yeah. Let's keep going, you know? Yeah, and if you make a mistake in a newspaper, they cut it out and find you at the Safeway store three years later and say, hey, by the way, you, you misspelled my name, or that was my brother-in-law, not my brother, or, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And they, Or they're up on their freezer, but sometimes on the freezer or refrigerator, they're hanging there for inspired reasons and yeah. affirmation reasons and, and things that matter or things that matter to them. Yeah. Find Kevin Wooster's byline at sdpb.org slash Wooster. That's our show for today. We hope that it served you. Tomorrow on In the Moment, there are all kinds of ways to play with Barbies. The In the Moment producers and I share our own Barbie girl moments. 
Plus, our child development expert joins us for a look at why we play with dolls and what it means for development and learning. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.